Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. The human adventure, Pete, is just beginning. So the trailer tries to tell us, Andy. The human adventure. What do you think that means? Is there a deeper meaning I don't get from the uh, than, than what is presented? I don't know, but I was like, it seems a little speciesist. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, right? Yeah. This is all a of... universe full of all sorts of different beings. And here we are, the first trailer for the first Star Trek film. And mm-hmm. they're already cutting everybody else out. That's right. But it, they actually, there is a great diversity of bald humans. <laughs> and so maybe they thought they could make up for it that way. <laughs> it just seemed, even though she's, what was, what's, what is uh, Ilya again? She's a, a, a Divinian. Branch Davidian? What? <laughs> I think that was it. Yes. She's a Branch Delton. Davidian. She's a Delton. She's a Delton. Yes. So listen, okay, so I was watching for aliens in the film, Pete. And yeah. I saw Klingons. Mm-hmm. I saw Vulcans. Not with our team, but did you I did wait, where did you see Klingons? Uh, at the very beginning. Did you saw ships. No, no, sorry. We're, we're talking about the trailer. But I'm yeah. just talking I'm I'm jumping into the film real quick because the point is, there are Klingons, Vulcans. There's a guy with a really big head. There's like a, there's a, like a, a guy from the Cantina Band from uh, Star Wars. Uh-huh. There's like a blue guy. There's another blue guy with little antenna. There's like a wolf woman. Plus, there's this Delton. Uh-huh. But the trailer emphasizes right out of the gate, the human adventure is just beginning. True. That's... That is true. And that it feels like that hurt your feelings a little bit. It did a little bit. I, I felt a little pain. Why? Why do you think that is? Well, this this put yourself in 1979. Yes, I suppose. I suppose. And what would you call it otherwise? The being adventure. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, you're right. Like, like there's an. I would not edit it. I would not use it. Right. It's not. It's not fixable as it is. It's not something that you'd. It's. It's sort of silly. I agree with you there. But. But. Uh, when you look at the perspective of uh, what they're trying, what what I think the trailer is trying to sell, which is one, hey, remember the show you used to love, 18 to 24-year-old boys? Uh, we're back, and we're going to try and make a promise with this trailer that this movie you're about to see in a few months is not going to be the last thing you'll see of us. Yeah. And I feel like that that line makes that promise to a particular demographic. And on that front, it succeeds. And the trailer, in fact, is, uh, you know, it, it's much better paced <laughs> than the film, arguably. <laughs> that is true. Right? That is definitely true. It Well, and it gives a sense of action. It, some, mm-hmm. it gives you a sense of the wormhole. You see a tiny tease of Klingons in there. There's, you know, it's... There's stuff happening. It's it's interesting, you know. I, I, I find it an interesting... Uh, trailer because it gives you a sense of things happening without actually spelling out any sense of a plot. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. There is there is no plot. Like and, I, and I could watch this today and go, oh, that's so refreshing to have a trailer that's not spelling out the whole movie for me from beginning to end. It is, and and in, on that front, it is a celebration. Does the trailer? I mean, does it make you want to see the movie? Well, putting myself back in my 1979 shoes, pretending I'm older <laughs> at the time, um. I I think so because you know it's hitting at a time when science fiction films in the movie theaters are getting much more exciting than they were, you know, a decade or two before when they were just very schlocky just the B movie stuff. I probably would have loved that stuff too, but coming on the heels of of Star Wars having a chance to see kind of the Star Trek team in action on the big screen, I think it just totally would have set up for me exactly what I wanted in a film at the time. So yes, I would say this was a success, successful trailer. Yeah, I, I do too. I, I feel like it's it's exciting. I, I get a lot out of it. I didn't see it in the theater uh, the first time I saw it, but um, I, I did, um, just watching it today, it feels like 
this would have gotten me into the movie. I will say I was surprised that Alexander Courage's theme doesn't pop up at all in the trailer. It's like I, I, maybe Jerry Goldsmith wasn't done writing his music, but it was strange that the main uh, theme from the TV show was nowhere to be found. That was uh, like such an iconic uh, TV theme and th- another thing that would have instantly sold the crowds to the uh, uh, to the, um, the movie they were about, uh, expecting to see. Yeah, why do you think they did that? I don't know. I was trying... I'm trying to figure out if there was something having to do with um, some issues between Courage and Goldsmith. Um, I, I mean, reading about it, it didn't seem like there were any conflicts or anything. It seemed like everybody was kind of happy to be working together. So I don't know. It's just it's one of those weird things, uh, Other, unless it was as rushed as the film was. In the well, end. okay. It, it, arguably, though, I mean, if it was as rushed as that, it would have been so much easier to just use the original theme. Uh, but the as, as a thought experiment... We're trying to make the case that this is a story that is fit for the big screen. Uh, don't you think the little screen theme might have dated it? Knowing what we know now, uh, notwithstanding, right? Now we know that there's lore and that that theme actually means something to people more than just, you know, it's three-year run on television. That's all we had then. Really interesting point, especially because, uh, you know, and I, I heard some of the producers talking about this. No one could quite you know, say if they were convinced it was true or not. But they were saying that they think this was the first film adapted from a TV show. Yeah, from a uh, originally TV show intended right. script. Yeah, right, exactly. Or just any TV show that was then turned into a film. Yeah, that could have been a big fear. Yeah, that's actually a very valid point that they might go, Oh, we don't want people to think it's just a TV show on the big screen. Well, this is a big night. And uh, I just want to said that here in the first, you know, Six minutes or so, I had a good point. Travel forward with us, 300 years into the future, to confront the greatest mystery ever to threaten mankind. We are aboard a huge starship called the Enterprise. This is the return of Captain Kirk. An alien object of unbelievable destructive power is less than three days away from this planet. Mr. Spock. I offer my services as science officer. Dr. McCoy. Scotty. And joining them on their mission, Commander Will Decker and Navigator Ilea. I'm sorry. That you left Delta IV? Or that you didn't even say goodbye? Get us back an impulse power. Forwards. Wormhole distortion is overloaded the main power systems. The late laser order. This, then, is the epic journey of the Starship Enterprise traveling to the outer limits of time and space to challenge a vast, living machine of destruction. The human adventure is just beginning. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we mark the glorious episode 400 of this very show by kicking off a 13-week journey into the final frontier with Star Trek, the motion picture. 1979's gently-paced stroll through space at the hands of director Robert Wise. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And hey, if you're tuning in, that means you are a connoisseur of fine film just like we are. So let's take the next step in our relationship. 
go on over to patreon.com and uh, we'll get a lot of warm feelings shared there. We'll give you some perks and lots of great things. So check it out. Uh, make a regular donation. We'd love to have you. And you can join us in the Slack feed then and uh, jump into the conversations over there. So head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. I, in particular, <laughs> would like to get some more feelings shared. <laughs> if we could do that in the passive voice, that would be really exceptional. <laughs> We're working on that. <laughs> Andy, uh, opening question for you. Yes. What I've been thinking about this a lot. What is it, sir? that makes Star Trek, Star Trek? That's a question I really should pose to you because I think between the two of us, you're more of the Star Trek fan, um, or I should say you're more of the Star Trek connoisseur. I'm certainly a fan. I just am not uh, as deep a fan as you. Um, but that being said, it's an interesting question. And, and I guess for me, what I see as Star Trek is it takes the sci-fi um, elements that you get in some of the other uh, sci-fi films and everything, and it kind of seems to take the science maybe a little bit more seriously. I know obviously there's a lot of stuff that's just as as fantastical as uh, Star Wars and other sorts of uh, sci-fi films. But I think uh, there's a certain level where it's a little more uh, looking at things just a little more realistically. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. There's a certain sense of, of um, you know, we're, we're going to find joy in administration, you know, <laughs> that you don't get. <laughs> Really, in Star Trek, uh, we're going to take you to Starfleet and show people, you know, at work, and um, you know that's that's not really something that uh, that that you see so much um, in 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 Star Wars. I am I I would say I am more of a Star Trek person than a Star Wars person. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I am. I deeply enjoy Star Wars. I hope that has come across in our own conversations about Star Wars on this show. But I find I am more uh, captivated by the stories that come across Star Trek, even this film. And this is a particularly divisive film uh, in, in the, the, certainly the cinematic canon, uh, if you, you know, all the shows notwithstanding. I, you, you'll remember, I mean, when we first started the show, I was in the middle of my uh, own marathon. I had never intentionally sat down to watch every single um, episode of every series of Star Trek. And so it was probably now five or six years ago uh, that I, I took that on and um, finished it. And a couple of the series I've done again as my kids have aged, and so I've I've seen them all. I, I would not say my my knowledge of the shows is encyclopedic, right? I, I I haven't sat down to study them, but I am deeply entertained by them. I love them. I love the characters, and um, and I love this the 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 intention of the show to celebrate the triumph of cooperation over individual individuality that there is heroism in cooperation in groups coming together and working together and crews and teams uh, uh trying to accomplish audacious things uh by you know everybody contributing and or, or more than just one hero coming up with the 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 grand idea to save the day or having some mystical power to that that will suddenly allow them to do things that they couldn't otherwise do you know i i feel like that's that's something that I, I really celebrate about Star Trek, that it's in the future and there's a lot of fancy technology, but generally the solutions to the toughest problems are not solved mystically. 
and and that I think is is important, uh, and and it's part of Roddenberry's uh, sort of cultural subversion. I mean, at the time he was writing the television show. Um, you know, there's a lot that he was trying to get on screen that would not have passed the censors. And so that's, you know, that's sort of the lore of Star Trek. I, I find that really attractive that it's, that, that it's pushing some of those boundaries in a way um, that makes it more culturally relevant over the years. I don't know. I'm rambling on now. What do you think? No, it's interesting. Roddenberry certainly is an interesting character. And just reading kind of through his history, I mean, he's... I, you know, there's definitely things to like about him. There's definitely things to not like about him. But you're right. I mean, the fact that he really pushed with um, with Star Trek and, and other stories, kind of everything that he was working on in Hollywood to kind of create a much more racially diverse uh, projects and just more open to kind of looking at things uh, in those sorts of eyes. I thought it was really interesting to read about him. And I'm really glad that he kind of pushed that with this particular project and uh, really kind of, you know, helped open the doors. And you're right, the idea of the collective versus the individual is really an interesting aspect to his uh, storytelling. And I think it's also interesting to take a story like that and put it in context of a ship, right, where it really is run by an individual. You have a captain helming it who really has to kind of stay, uh, stay as this individual while trying to manage this collective in a way where everybody still feels, you know, they're part of a collective and it's not just about the captain being the hero or anything. Although we certainly get Shatner as the hero in plenty of these stories that we'll talk about, but still, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. But I think that is one of the things that makes, uh, you know, Captain Kirk the a compelling character. Whether You know, whatever you want to say about Shatner and his performance, uh, which, you know, it's fantastic. Who are we kidding? It's Shatner. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, whatever you want to say about that, one of the things that I think is most interesting about his character is that uh, it it is the, the struggle, the inherent struggle of that character is how do I run a ship and, and uh, you know, uh, turn off or at least sort of uh, like mute those baser instincts to just be the egomaniac hero. Right, that that's so many of the conversations that he has with people throughout, not just this film but others, uh, are are about him struggling with just that. Right, how how do you be the hero but also run a ship that is heroic? Yeah, it's a really interesting aspect, and I and I think it's really smart to make it about this group because you've got all these different people who have their own responsibilities, and you're relying upon them. Kirk is managing the ship, but he has to rely on Spock to handle, you know, the science uh, bits. He has to uh, manage or talk to Sulu to manage the navigation. They all have their own parts, and they're all critical in in getting the stuff done that they need to be getting done. I think that is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting way to kind of set this up, and I think it works really well in context. And looking at this overall story... I think it's interesting to kind of look at how this kind of came off the back of this TV show that was, uh, you know, popular in the 60s and uh, ran for three seasons. But when we jump into the movie, it's like, I don't know, it's a, it's an interesting setup where it's it's not really setting us up. I mean, you know, we, we have to kind of walk in knowing who these characters are and knowing the relationship with this ship and and just kind of getting a handle on it, you know, uh, right out of the gate, kind of, you know. Yeah, it, does it do that in a way that, um, or, or does it do it successfully? 
it's it's so hard to separate myself because I've seen so many of the old shows, and I actually started rewatching the the old series again before uh, before jumping into this film. Um, I mean, stepping stepping away from the old series, it's like you you start this movie and and Kirk, you, you when he's introduced, it's you know set up in a way where he's no longer the captain; he's an admiral. And uh, he's no longer the captain of the Enterprise. He's been on, you know, living down in in San Francisco for, it sounds like, at least two and a half years. He has not flown any ships. Head of Starfleet operations. And then he is brought up to the Enterprise because they're having this issue with this this, uh, presence, this alien thing that is heading straight for Earth. So yes, I I think it does a decent job of setting up the story and the characters. We get a little bit that you know this is a guy who was used to be the captain. He's not anymore. Now he's got this this Captain Decker who's captain at the Enterprise. But then you know Starfleet wants Kirk. He kind of it sounds like they want him, but it also sounds like he he kind of pushed his way back into being captain of the Enterprise so that he could go kind of confront this thing. Which is great, great conflict there, right? Because Decker's backstory is that, you know, he took over the Enterprise retrofit where, you know, and we don't know retrofit from what, right? It was it, yeah, right. It was yet another time the Enterprise was blown up. We didn't actually see it. Uh, or is it just, you know, the five-year mission was over, everybody came back and it needed to be retooled. Uh, whatever the case is, Deckard had a, uh, a, a, a deep connection to this enterprise, and that created some great conflict. Um, But here's an interesting thing uh, to this specific question about character setup that I think it's a data point. Uh, The year that Star Trek the TV show was canceled was the last year that television ratings were measured in raw numbers. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Like Nielsen? Yeah, let's say, you know, I'm actually... Or whatever it is. Yeah, whatever it was at the time. It was called at the time. Which means when you saw ratings for a particular television show, it was just one big number, you know? Three million people watched this show at at that time. But we didn't know who they were. The next year, the next year after Star Trek is canceled, they start measuring by demographic. And suddenly, out of nowhere, 18 to 24 year olds are a representative audience that matters. And suddenly, as they push Star Trek into syndication, which it should not have gone into syndication, there were not 100 episodes, which was the low bar that had to be met in order for a show to get pushed into syndication automatically. Paramount put it into syndication, and suddenly they realized, holy cow, we just thought we had low numbers, but it turns out the number that matters, we had it. We had it, and that is what drove, uh, what certainly contributed to the discussion of bringing Star Trek back. Uh, and and in this case, you know, there was there was discussion about doing it as another television show, not directly a film. Uh, you know, but uh, I I thought that was a fascinating uh, sort of uh, I, I guess technological data point uh, that uh, really you could argue contributed to saving Star Trek. It was interesting how much they would tap into the audience that would uh, that loved Star Trek. I mean, I, I read something about how when there was talk uh, about 
not having a second season, Roddenberry like had all these university students, you know, he would talk, I mean, there were these conventions already going on at the time and he would talk to them and, and get them to like go and, and pick it out in front of Paramount. And so, yes, there was a season two and then yes, they did it again. And there was a season three and then things kind of tapered off and they didn't get any farther than that. But it's, it, they really seemed to connect with their core audience. And yes, it grew exponentially when they started in syndication, but right out of the gate, it's so interesting to me that this was a uh, Roddenberry and his his team somehow recognized that there was this this uh, power with this particular uh, this um, uh, project that drew people to it and was something that could really that they could tap into to kind of continue to build upon it. And I think that's so interesting. And then when they realized, wow, we send, you know, going into syndication and this, we can really tap into this 18 to 24 year old market that really could help us grow it and use that to kind of continue it. It's so fascinating to me. So, of course, what came out of that discussion was was a, the potential of a new show, a new, the continuing voyages of, of the Starship Enterprise in the form of Star Trek Phase Two. And they had sets and they had scripts coming in and they had, uh, you know, they had uh, interest. They were building, had a crew. They have, you know, you search YouTube, you've got all the documentary footage of behind the scenes of Phase Two. Uh, and uh, at, at the time... Uh, there was some consternation around uh, what they wanted to do with this property. And what's your what's your sense of how we went from phase two to the motion picture? Well, it sounds like kind of an interesting journey where, you know, they, they realized, um, well, I think there was concern about the strength of a movie script. They couldn't find anything that worked. So they're like, you know what, Star Trek was a TV show. We should leave it a TV show even though Roddenberry always felt, you know, it could make a great film. And so they went back to writing phase two and, and they were doing well with coming up with kind of the, the plans for it and everything. But then Star Wars did a great job. Close Encounters of the Third Kind did a great job. And that one really kicked it off where it's like, you know, Close Encounters wasn't Star Wars. It was a little more of a kind of a thinking sci-fi sort of thing. I mean, it still is a, you know a, more than that, but but it's not Star Wars. And and Paramount was like, ah, maybe we could do it. And and so they shifted it back, even though they still had this this uh, this TV show in the works. And so they were kind of doing both at the same time. It sounded like there was some, some conflict with the uh, cancellation of Phase 2 um, and the development of the film, which kind of, you know, we, everybody had to kind of jump on board and shift and redesign everything. Like all the sets had to be redesigned. All of the costumes had to be redesigned. Everything had to be kind of redesigned for uh, for the film rather than the TV show. And uh, But they still didn't really have a script. And they were kind of working with a few ideas. I know there was one that, that Roddenberry wanted to do called uh, The God Thing, which um, is actually very similar to what we ended up with. Um, there was another one that they actually brought Philip Kaufman in. They started developing that one, and that was called uh, something something of the Titans. I can't remember exactly. Um, uh, Planet of the Titans, where they ended up going back in time and like introducing fire to the cavemen. <laughs> Introduce fire of, to the cavemen. Yes. Oh my goodness! The crew of the Enterprise become the Titans. It, it just sounded so nonsensical. <laughs> Uh, so, but obviously those didn't work and they ended up going kind of latching onto this idea that I can't remember what was it called the initial TV show or the pilot episode for phase two. Um, 
In thy image. In thy image, yeah. yeah right. And it was it was based on a story that was submitted by Alan Dean Foster. Um, and it was it was a V'ger story, but if I understand it correctly, instead of V'ger, it was Insa. Correct. Insa. Yes. For NASA. And interestingly, it's also very similar to uh, an episode of the TV show called The Changeling, which is, uh, you know, it's so similar. It's like they find this, this um, thing floating in space called Nomad, and it's this uh, kind of pod that speaks to them, and it's this robot and everything, or this is this machine, and it's looking for its maker, and uh, they it, they end up having to destroy it before it destroys them. And it's, it's just like, gosh, this is clearly a theme that Roddenberry really wanted to pursue at some point in a feature film. Yeah, and and one of the things I love so much about the show in particular is the way the story of Star Trek The Motion Picture ends up not only leveraging the scripts that came before it, but paying off uh, in so many subsequent films and the other TV series. In fact, so many of the scripts of the canceled Phase 2 series uh, ended up being reworked for the next generation. So essentially, you know what you're getting in the next generation, at least season uh, seasons one and two, I think many of the stories were uh, intended for Star Trek Phase Two. And I should add, just as a as an aside, if you search for Star Trek Phase Two on YouTube, there are uh, there's a, a YouTube channel with a whole bunch. I'm guessing fan made uh, full length episodes um, and um, of of the Star Trek that would have been Phase Two, and it's uh, it's really interesting. I watched some of them today. Uh, skipping around, um, but they they very much leverage the original, um, you know, trying to to make the effects look as if they were, um, you know, original effects. The sets absolutely look uh, like the original sets. It it really is to pick up the next five years with a new cast. Wow! Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, Star Trek probably also is what spun off uh, fan made uh, films and fan yeah. fiction because. <laughs> There's plenty of it out there. The script was uh, ultimately written by Harold Livingston uh, and Roddenberry, but I think, you know, in some of the behind the scenes, the way Livingston tells it, uh, man, does he carry all the water on this script uh, and, and seems kind of curmudgeonly about it. Yeah, it's kind of funny because listening to people talk about it, it's like Livingston wrote a draft and then Roddenberry rewrote it and then yeah. Livingston rewrote that and then Roddenberry rewrote that. And they fought all the time and nobody could, you know, there were producers trying to hold their hands together so that they could work together, but it never quite worked out. It's like, oh, man. Sounds my like life was so bear. hard and Roddenberry, he's not, my life was hard. I had five weeks. I had to write this thing. And of course, Roddenberry <laughs> had already passed away during that interview. So who's there to yeah. To, right. uh, Correct him. Um, the script is is interesting, and I think this is where, well, obviously uh, the the direction um, Robert Wise direction certainly plays into this. But what's your sense of the script and uh, and how it is it is paced? It's hard to say that with the film uh, as it is because the film pacing is has to be different than the script pacing. The effects and the effect sequences throughout the film can be glacial at times. And I don't think the script worked quite that way. I think the script probably moves at a, a much uh, better clip. But I think, you know, the thing about what I find interesting about what these guys did in the script is they build this antagonist that we have here, um, V'ger, that is all dead set on coming and destroying Earth because it's trying to find its maker. And if its maker is not going to answer, then it's going to blow everything up. 
Um, so it's this great antagonist. And Star Trek does this a lot where you have an antagonist that is all set to destroy things. But instead of just being kind of the the black hat, white hat sort of protagonist, antagonist story, what it evolves into is this thing where it's like, hey, let's, as the protagonists, let's try to understand what it is about this antagonist and what it's trying to do, and then work to make a plan and see if we can fix things. And I found that really interesting in this script is that these guys ended up uh, trying to stop V'ger. They saw what happened when other people tried to stop it. And so Kirk, you know, they they figure out this plan to kind of go along and and start talking to V'ger and figure out out what it needs and what it's searching for so that they can actually resolve the conflict without having to destroy anything. It's it's really kind of a, an amazing thing that you do get. And it's going back to the conversation at the start here about what's different about Star Trek and what makes Star Trek Star Trek. I think that is a very big thing where we have these elements where they put it into the script where it's it's not just about good guys getting rid of bad guys. It's about you know dealing with conflict in a way that makes us all better in the end. Yeah, I I agree. And uh, even when they're doing things, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, they're doing things that are really and ultimately absurd. Uh, they uh, they're still doing it with that same intention, right? That when you apply the the um, uh, the uh, contributions of the many, right? Uh, not to crib a Star Trek phrase, right? You you end up making a a bigger contribution. Um, to humanity, and that's really what Star Trek has never been afraid uh, of of answering that question. Like, look what humanity can do, uh, and there are a few properties that that are uh, you know so bold uh, as to talk at that scale. Yeah, right. Uh, then direction by uh, Robert Wise. Uh, so it is it is Wise who uh, decided to do some of these. Um, gently paced space strolls. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to people talk about this, and this film was so behind in its schedule, and they had a hard date because they'd already already made deals with all the exhibitors um, that it's going to air December 1979. And um, what happened was they gave intense amounts of effects work to the effects teams. First it was, I think it was Abel, and then it was uh, Douglas Trumbull, and... Um, they had to get a lot of stuff done in a very short period of time. And from what it sounds like is Robert Wise like left some holes in where the effects were going to go. But in the end, when he got the effects, he didn't have time to shorten anything down. He just basically had to drop them in and go with it. And so I, he might have preferred shorter effect sequences, but as it is, they take a long time. But they, they look great. They, well, they do look great. And that ship looks great. You know, they rebuilt the ship from the show and from the intended show for phase two. And it's it, because they needed a bigger model. They wanted to do some uh, unique lensings to to really show the size and scale of the ship. And it's beautiful. The reveal, even though it is, uh, you know, it's 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 an extravagant reveal. Uh, as as Kirk <laughs> yes, is, is in the shuttle flying, I mean, it's, I think I, they do a full three sixty. I think it, they go. <laughs> they do. They go. It's it's and and the way that scene ends 
is it, it's I, I don't know if they were trying to be funny about it, but uh, you know, as as Kirk <laughs> turns around and says, oh, "Well, there you go, then." You know, it's like the weirdest uh, line to end. I don't I don't remember what the exact line was. Well, not uh, to mention, but, isn't there a, like a wider shot of the of the ship from the side, and you see one of those little astronauts doing a flip, like, the, like doing a cartwheel? I was <laughs> yeah. like, "What is he? <laughs> Woo!" Yeah. <laughs> extravagant it is an extravagant sequence but right you're right it is beautiful and it fits absolutely with the pace of the rest of the film while it it tends to be the longest sequence that uh you know focused on a single ship uh there are some rather extravagant uh introductions of once we get inside the cloud and inside v'ger which are also stunningly beautiful well, that's the thing that I found this time is I actually the pace did not bother me one iota this time. And I was really surprised because that's all I remembered mm-hmm. from my one time that I had seen this before. I was like, oh, my God, is the slowest film in the world. But I really enjoyed all of those sequences. I kind of reveled in the just the experience of getting to look at these models in incredible detail. I had a great time and I was really surprised that I took it like that way when I watched it this time. I'm like, it was actually really beautiful to look at just some amazing work that these people did putting this film together. I do too. And and I'm with you. It did. The pace didn't, didn't bother me it, it, this time around in particular. And I think every time I've watched this movie, I like it a little bit more. Uh, and, and this time, absolutely no exception. And I think it sets up the series strangely pretty well. Uh, I I don't regret starting with The Wrath of Khan when I introduced this to my family. Uh, (laughs) I I don't regret that, but anyway. Talking about Robert Wise, something that really struck me as I was watching this film is this is the guy who like got his start editing for Orson Welles, like with Citizen Kane. I mean, he's a really interesting director who's made some, uh, who's edited some really interesting films and has directed a lot of really interesting films. He was a really interesting uh, choice for this. I mean, he had some sci-fi under his belt. He did The Day the Earth Stood Still. He did uh, Andromeda The Andromeda Strain. Strain, which we've talked about this the show. Yeah. Uh, not big fans of that one, but he's a really interesting director and just the way he puts things together. I really enjoy it. I think he's, um, he can be a, an effective director and it's funny cause watching this film and just being inside a ship, I just kept noticing the ceilings. And that was a big thing with Citizen Kane when that came out is, is how, you know, you weren't just, you know, stuck looking at just the actors in the scene. They allowed you to see the ceiling and it just felt like, you know, you weren't necessarily just in a set. And that was something that was really kind of revelatory at the time. And uh, and I can't say for sure that he kind of pulled from that to uh, you know talk to his uh, production designer on this particular film because it's in a ship, everything is more confined. But I have to say, there are some, some shots throughout this where you, the camera's lower and you just have these great frame uh, framed shots with this ceiling and these nice lines across it, the way that the ceilings are designed. It just made for some, such interesting framing. And I really enjoyed how Robert Wise and his... Uh, and his DP, Richard uh, H. Klein, were working within these sets that they had built. I agree. And, uh, you know, I have to call out the split diopter celebration. Oh. Uh, Holy it, cow. It, right. Uh, and, and, you know, I <laughs> I thought uh, this this was going to be it. I thought this was, I mean, it seems like every other shot, they're, they're using split diopter. And, in, in fact, there are over 100 split diopter shots in this film. But you already mentioned... The Andromeda Strain, again, with DP Richard Klein, 
which has over 206, over 200, 206 oh. split diopter shots in the Andromeda strain. I remember talking about that with you, but I, I, I don't remember it being quite as excessive as it is. That is crazy. Crazy. Now we've crazy. talked about we've talked about them before, and obviously it was a big thing in the seventies because um, all the presidents' men, which came out uh, earlier in the in the decade before this, had a good number, but I don't think it had nearly this many. I, I mean, don't. They're so everywhere. I know, I know. It, they're, they're everywhere, and, but it used to great effect. First of all, it, it allows you to you know really examine the detail of the set and the production design in a way that you can't otherwise. You already mentioned the way they use the ceiling, and and this again is a great tie to the Andromeda strain. When you look at where they use uh, the split diopter shots, it allows you to see floor and ceiling in a way that you don't uh, often see, uh, and as they capture some really unique angles. Um, and of course, you get lots of William Shatner's perfectly combed hair in perfect, pristine focus. It, it was really, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. Um, anything else on Robert Wise? I just, he never returned to uh, this franchise, but, uh, you know, I, I just thought he was a really interesting director. And it was nice to see his name here. I mean, he's done some films that I really, really love. And uh, I mean, he this was really close to the end of his directing career. He after this, it was a decade before he directed something else. It was 1989 when he did a film called Rooftops. And then in 2000, he did something, a TV movie called A Storm in Summer. And that was it. And then he, uh, he passed away in 2005. But I mean, this was right toward the end of his career. And uh, it was quite a career. And I will say, I think this was a, a good way to close out a wonderful uh, library of films that he had done. We'll be talking about a number of uh, cast members over the course of, of our series here, but in, in terms of cast and crew highlights, those that really stand out uh, to you, um, uh, who, who do you want to talk about? Well, I think Jerry Goldsmith first, um, his film score here, I think may be one of my favorites of his. Mm -hmm. It's just just brilliant from beginning to end. Um, the the theme he has for Ilya, the just the main theme. I mean, this is that iconic theme that I grew to love uh, from watching uh, the Next Generation so much, and to hear it here in such amazing glory. I mean, it's just a beautiful score. And then of course he's got the great kind of the 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 boom that sound for uh, for V'ger and everything. And, oh, I mean, it's oh, just... the Klingon theme and the Klingon yeah, theme. You right, can't. The that is theme, just right. fantastic. And and we don't get. We don't get much of it, uh, you know, because the Klingon role in this film is such a tease. Uh, you know, there there isn't much of a big bad in at this point in the timeline, and so um, in, in terms of the Klingons, and so you you get this. The, the film opens with that wonderful uh, theme, and then um, you don't get it anymore. And that's really what I wanted back. He it was a it was a the blaster beam is what uh, what they were using. It was an it's an electronic instrument, twelve to fifteen feet long and it would just make it was a uh, it's like this um steel wires connected to amplifiers fitted to the main piece of aluminum and it was played with an artillery shell sounds <laughs> 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 like that sounds like the strangest uh, instrument but it just it gives such a great sound and yeah i think that um goldsmith brought so much to this franchise and it was a shame he was gone from it uh for such a long period of time but 
great that he did get to return to it. We'll talk about that when we hit those films. Absolutely. Um, so Jerry Goldsmith is one. Uh, you know, you've already mentioned the the effects team, and I think between Douglas Trumbull and and John Dykstra was on this, and uh, you know, there the, Sid the, Mead was did some designs, right? Uh, the uh, the connection. This again to the connection between the the folks who were on and had left ILM uh, on working on the Star Wars films. Um, there, you you see a little bit of of Star Wars in in this track. And Close Encounters. I think uh, true, that yeah. that has a lot more with it because just the way that the 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 ships all had kind of a real much more physical presence and just the lights and everything. I don't know. I, yeah, I definitely see a lot of that in this. And those guys who are working on those particular films right around this time, I think they just had they had tapped into kind of a, a core essence of sci-fi of the time and they brought a lot to the table with what they did here. Persis Kambada, you you wrote on the list as somebody you wanted to talk about. She plays uh, Ilya. Yeah, she never returns um, to the franchise. Um, she's a, just an interesting person. Just reading about her, and she was uh, Miss India in 1965 um, and Miss Universe also. And uh, from that, I guess it just kind of led to some acting and everything. And she ended up like she did a, her Bollywood debut in '67 and went on to do a number of things. But this ended up being the film. That was her most recognized performance as the Delta Navigator, Lieutenant Ilya. And she did actually shave her head for this. Uh, Robert Wise said, you know, you're going to have to shave your head. And she had no issue with that. She was fine doing it. And I thought that was just fantastic. Um, and uh, interestingly, and this is just an odd side note, she was the first Indian citizen to actually present an Academy Award the following year uh, in 1980 after this. Um, and I mean, I will say... I was so connected to her character in this film. I don't know what it was, but I think it was something about just the emotion. My emotional draw went to her in this film. And I, I guess that's why I wanted to bring her up because she's only in this franchise this one time. But for for me, this time when I watched this film, I feel like she really made this film for me. I, I didn't find that same connection to, to her in particular. I mean, I, I understand the, the role, um, but it was really difficult for me to separate uh, what I want out of the crew. And sure. I couldn't stop thinking about why isn't Chekhov sitting in that stupid chair? <laughs> <laughs> I know that that must seem really petty, uh, but but that's what that's what I kept thinking about. And so even even today, I, I as I watched a little bit back at the film just this morning, I'm, I'm thinking, OK, Let's go, go ahead and get her digitized so we can move on. <laughs> That's so funny. Move it on. So sad. Well, I mean, and, check out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and here is a shortcoming of, of the film. I never once, uh, you know, found myself really attracted to the relationship between Deckard and Ilya. Right. No, There's I supposed either. to be some sense yes. of tension and romantic tension that they had something and now it is lost and and that that never really played out for me. That was that was something that never worked for me that much either. I mean there's it's it's interesting setting up kind of a backstory between Decker and Ilya. Um but it's it's a weekly setup. Um mm -hmm. I appreciated that is there. I would have liked more because obviously it ends up playing a very critical role in the climax of the film. Yeah. Uh, a Persis Kambata died very young. She was 49, right after her last role, Not a Nice Man to Know, a TV series where she played a guest. I don't know what that's all about, but it's that's very sad. Yeah, she died of a heart attack. Very mm. sad. Mm. Yeah. All right, so let's dive into a, a particular scene that, that, that 
really says something specific about the film that you you feel like makes the movie uh, what it is or is representative of what the film is. Uh, and yes. the scene that we have selected is scene 140. Uh, that's right. I on, only because I have the script open. Uh, we are <laughs> it's interior Kirk's quarters. Uh, it is a scene between Captain Kirk, Doctor McCoy, and Willard Decker. Do you want to set it up? So this is right after they escape the wormhole uh, when uh, Shatner says to use their phasers, and uh, and Decker says, "No, no, no, belay that order. Use the proton torpedoes." And and so Chekhov blasts the tro- proton torpedoes and destroys this meteor that's in this wormhole. I didn't quite figure out exactly how that whole thing uh, was resolved, but somehow they they escape this wormhole. Um, because of this situation and because they're all okay now, uh, it's great. But Kirk says, uh, you know, Decker in my in my quarters right now. And McCoy joins in. Um, <laughs> so, I want to come. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, that was strange. Hey, can I come, Jim? That was <laughs> a strange little request. And the line but, specifically is really casual. Mind if I tag along? <laughs> right. It's like, I'm going to go bitch slap this right, guy. Right. Oh, hey, can I come <laughs> can watch? Can I watch? <laughs> <laughs> All right, explanation. Why was my phaser order countermanded? Sir, the Enterprise redesign increases phaser power by channeling it through the main engines. When they went into antimatter imbalance, the phasers were automatically cut off. And you acted properly, of course. Thank you, sir. I'm sorry if I embarrassed you. You saved the ship. I'm aware of that, sir. Stop competing with me, Decker. Permission to speak freely, sir? Granted. Sir? You haven't logged a single star hour in two and a half years. That plus your unfamiliarity with the ship's redesign, in my opinion, sir, seriously jeopardizes this mission. I trust you will nurse made me through these difficulties, mister? Yes, sir, I'll do that. And I won't keep you from your duties any longer, Commander. There, there's a lot to get out of this scene uh, in terms of just how it is portrayed. It is not an effects-heavy scene. It is very much a character-heavy scene uh, because we get to see these three characters in a way that... that and it's, it's not often that we see deep scenes that don't involve Kirk, McCoy, and Spock. And so to see them uh, sort of jockeying around a third character that isn't Spock is, is sort of unique in this film, right, where, where Shatner gets to learn something or Kirk gets to learn something about himself. Uh, and, and so I find that interesting. I think Stephen Collins does an, a great job here at, at playing the straight man. Uh, he is very, in, he's, he's absolutely right and steadfast uh, in, in his um, uh, in his response, you know, uh, you acted properly, of course, Kirk says. Thank you, sir. I'm sorry I embarrassed you. You saved the ship. I'm aware of that, sir. Uh, which, again, this becomes the character pivot for Kirk and Decker to realign with one another um, for the duration of the film, right? This this is the opportunity for them to um, to get it all out in the open uh, that, that Decker believes Kirk hasn't uh, spent enough time, logged enough star hours, and this is going to be where where the line is drawn. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a critical part because this is where he says, you know, it's it's you know, you are potentially going to um, put us all at risk because 
you don't know this ship and and um, because of that it's likely that we are going to end up getting into a situation we're not going to be able to uh, get out of. Mm-hmm. And then and then after the whole nursemaid bit and everything and and I mean it's nice to see Kirk this is this is interesting for a captain. It's nice to see him um, not just um, getting on uh, on Decker for uh, for uh, doing for belaying the order and all that sort of stuff. He actually listens. He understands you. You did save the ship. You did what your job was. Um, I've, I'm no longer mad at you. But then it's nice to see where he still kind of pokes him a little bit, and he's just like, "You think you can still nursemaid me through these steps?" You know, and just the way he says that is just kind of there's still a little dig in there, and I kind of like that with Kirk, how he still is like you know, being cheeky about it in a way that's like, you know, I still am the captain and I still am going to be leading here. Well, and Decker's um, response too, yes, sir, I'll do that, is is the same thing, right? He said, yes, of course I will help you and I'll continue to be a jerk about it. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> which is great. And then Bones, and that's what's great about Bones is he comes on after Decker leaves and we've got this moment between the two of them that's just like, you know, this is you. You are you. You know he might be right that you you bullied your way into this captain position. You have this obsession about leading this ship, um, uh, or kind of being the captain of this ship, and it might be the detriment of us all. Make your point, Doctor. The point, Captain, is that it's you who's competing. You ram getting this command on Starfleet's throat. You've used this emergency to get the Enterprise back. And I intend to keep her, is that what you're saying? Yes. It's an obsession. An obsession that can blind you to far more immediate and critical responsibilities. Your reaction to Decker is an example, Jim. Bridge to Captain. Viewer on. Signal from a Federation-registered long-range shuttle, sir. She wishes to come alongside and lock on. For what purpose? My security scan shows it has a grade one priority, Captain. Non-belligerency confirmed. I suspect it is a courier of some kind. Very well, Mr. Chekhov. See to it. Viewer off. Your opinion has been noted. Anything further? That depends on you. And it's an interesting scene. I will say that's one thing that I I would have liked to see a little more uh, with the resolution of the film is... How did that conversation end up playing out over the course of that those the climactic moments? Was there something about his obsession that he is finally able to let go that um, that helps him kind of grow and change there in the climax? And I didn't quite I didn't quite find it there, but I do still think that this is a strong scene the way it plays out. I do too, and and you get a sense for, or, or at least we get to revisit a little bit from sequences uh, of this ilk in the series, and we will see again, of the relationship between Kirk and McCoy and eventually Spock as that sort of id, ego, superego, right? As the three of them cannot uh, cannot function uh, without one another, and these sequences tend to, um, you know, portray uh, their roles very quickly in terms of how they approach a, a problem to solve emotionally. Uh, and and I uh, I really appreciate that, and I like the way it, it plays out here between the two of them. One of the things I like so much about it, though, is how they use camera to um, to illustrate their the power relationship between 
these characters, the way they portray, um, you know, Decker against Kirk, the size of Kirk's head often takes up a full third of the frame where you have Decker in a very small frame, uh, a small part of the frame, uh, you know, off center. Uh, and so again, illustrating sort of the power relationship between the two. Uh, they do a very similar thing next when when you compare Kirk and McCoy. Uh, McCoy will get a, a uh, close up. And then when it cuts back to Kirk, you end up getting uh, Kirk and McCoy in a two shot. And it's an off angle from the floor looking up, you get both characters crisp focus. Uh, and and it illustrates, uh, you know, when there is a change of tone, like, oh, my gosh, there's a ship, we're just being alerted to a ship, we have to get back into the structure of command and control. And I love the way we dance between hey, Kirk needs to learn something about himself here, thanks to McCoy's guidance to hey, Kirk is the captain of the ship, and he needs to maintain constant and steady control uh, at all times. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, it's it's Robert Wise, I think, understanding the language of of the frame and how to use it, and when to use a two shot versus when to use a single. And there, you know, there's great uh, when there's more of the power dynamic going on between Decker and and Kirk, you get more of those singles, you know. And it's not until they really get into the the more uh, the the direct conflict, while also the the resolution of their conflict, that you start getting some of those uh, those shots that are uh, sharing the two of them in the same frame. And I thought I thought that was great the way that he isolates them, but then brings them together. You've got when when Kirk is doing the nursemaid bit, you know, you have uh, you're really close to the two of them, and and you're kind of like finally, you know, everybody is kind of re resolving this conflict and everything. Um, but likewise, at the end of this uh, at the end of this bit, you know, when Bones and and uh, and Kirk are talking, and he, and first of all, it's that bit starts off with this beautiful shot where you're parallel to the two of them, and they are equals. And it's like, what a great way to start that off, showing that these two are at this particular moment, you know, they're equals with one another. And I was like, that's that's a brilliant way to do that. Um, before you then kind of go to those low shots, and you get those fantastic just diagonals from the ceiling that kind of continue that conflict. And then, and then you come back to going to the singles again, and then, and then Bones has that last line of his where he's just like, you know, uh, you know, that depends on you. That depends on you. Yeah, that's it. That is great. And what's great about those last moments is they're all isolated shots. You just get single characters after another shot of that kind of parallel, um, you know, equals shot. And it's not just that they're singles of Bones and Kirk, but in framing them, you're pushing them to the side of the frame. And generally, when you frame a character, um, you have them, for instance, if the character is kind of on the left side of the frame, they're looking to the right. Their eye line, you know, the space is in front of them. What they do here is they push the, the space to behind them, which just builds so much more conflict in the frames with these two characters for both Bones and Kirk. And then Bones walks out and you're left with this incredible still shot of Kirk just standing there as these pale like uh, or these dark glass doors close, leaving him just like this dark figure. I mean, it's just a beautiful way to end this in isolation. One thing I do have to say where it, it, there's a break in this where we have um, uh, a, a, a break where Uhura and Chekhov come on the view screen. Right. And it's the most awkward uh, blocking uh, of the sequence. Don't you find? It is very strange. What happens is the view screen comes on and Kirk 
walks over to the wall where he's standing next to this giant view screen and he turns his body so he's like three quarters or more facing away from it, looking down over his shoulder at the screen. It is a full-size screen. He should be standing on the other side of the room. It is a very strange over-the-shoulder shot uh, of from McCoy uh, looking at Kirk as if he is a weatherman. <laughs> right. You expect him to like be gesturing on the screen. Yes, and here's where Chekhov would have a mustache. That, right. <laughs> okay. It's interesting. I mean, watching the scene, and obviously there's an interruption in the middle of the scene where it cuts to Decker as he leaves, and then he and Ilya have a little conversation. But just taking this scene as a whole, uh, minus that, I mean, it's it's 30 shots that convey a lot of really interesting information about uh, about everything going on with these characters. Uh, 30 shots. Do you uh, over? Did you time it out? I did. The average shot length uh, over on Cinematrics, the average shot length of the movie is 5.6. I, you know, I, I don't know that we that we need to dive too deeply into this uh, until we get to some of the later Star Trek movies. Um, it, it felt to me, largely, I think, influenced by the, the overall pacing of the film, like it would, I would have expected that number to be much higher. Right, <laughs> on the order yeah, right. of six or seven seconds uh, per shot, um, but it, it was uh, it was not. And in fact, uh, the, spoiler: the Wrath of Khan gets longer. What? Yeah, it's really interesting. Yes, it is. I, I don't know if I understand that. <laughs> I'm curious to see how that's going to work out when yeah. we talk about it next week. But you know, it's it, it's such an interesting scene, and this is something I enjoy about Star Trek. Is you get these scenes like this. There's no music in it. The music is only in the the cutaway when we go to the scene with Decker and Ilya, um, and there's there's hardly any camera movement other than a few little tilts of the camera as a character kind of as generally Kirk is walking to or from the camera. That's it. Otherwise, yeah, the, it's the camera's very largely still. yeah, it's locked off, right? I mean, essentially, yeah, right. we're in some key positions, and we just jump back and forth between them. Uh, I I agree, and you know what's funny is they make this uh, a, a, an interesting and dramatic sequence that is essentially an HR intervention, <laughs> right? Exactly. Right. Only in Star Trek. But but it's so it's it's very critical because this sets up everything about Kirk. Uh, in this position where he's just like I, I, you know, I have to watch myself because maybe I am um, obsessed with this ship. Maybe I am in this position where I am not looking at things the right way. And like I said, it could have built a little better in the resolution, but still, it it gives us a sense of who he is and how he has to lead, which I think is great in context of the film. I absolutely agree. Uh, how to do an award season? Well, this was not something that uh, that really drew a lot of awards, although it did get four wins and 19 nominations. At the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Art Direction Set Decoration, but it lost to all that jazz. It was uh, nominated for Best Effects slash Visual Effects, but it lost to Alien, and it was nominated for Best Music Original Score, which lost to A Little Romance um, by Georges Delarue. So unfortunately, it didn't take home any Oscar gold Um uh, but it was also nominated for the worst picture uh, at the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. I wonder if that's kind of a precursor mm. to the Golden Raspberries. Um, but luckily, it lost. I guess you would say uh, to Nightwing. So um, you know, it's, I, haven't, it's, I haven't seen Nightwing. I haven't either. I'm not <laughs> sure I want to, knowing that it won the Stinker. Uh, well, so it, it didn't. Uh, it, it it didn't wasn't a big award draw, but had it do in the box office. 
Well, Gene Roddenberry's uh, theatrical vision of his universe started with a budget of $15 million, um, which was pretty big for the time, but it actually ballooned to $35 million with what I, it sounded like additional marketing costs kicking the budget up to a reported $46 million. Uh, that's wow. about $152 million in today's dollars. At the time, this was really interesting, it was actually the biggest budget ever spent on a film. And uh, I don't wow. think they were planning on that. But it did become that. Um, so yeah, that at the time, this was the biggest uh, film budget ever. Uh, the movie opened December 7th, 1979. It had no movies to compete with for its opening weekend. Um, and it shot to the top, breaking the box office record at the time for the highest weekend gross. I think it beat out Superman, which broke that record the year before. Uh, made $82 million domestically and $58 million internationally for a total of $139 million or $460 million in today's dollars. So pretty good. It was less than what uh, the execs at Paramount were actually hoping for, but luckily for all of us, still profitable enough to continue the series. That being said, it did hold the record for the most tickets sold for any film in the franchise until the 2009 reboot. And uh, of course, from our uh, point of view, as we always say, it did end up with an adjusted profit, profit per finished minute of $2.3 million. Wow. Most tickets sold for any film in the franchise. That 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 surprises me a lot, right? Especially in the era, like, how does that compete with the Wrath of Khan? Like, I I can't I can't rationalize that. It it kind of boggled my mind when I saw that statistic, but I I don't know if people just went to it, and I mean, they obviously had to keep going back. So I don't know. You know, in closing, I, I will say. I really liked this movie, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that at all. Like, I was really floored by how much I got into this film. It felt so different from the other Star Trek films. It really felt like a pensive, thoughtful uh, science fiction story. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed all the elements of it. And I was just really kind of wrapped into it from beginning to end. So um, I think it's a great way to start this series. That, that doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that you, that you like this. Like when you actually sit down to watch it with intention, this, this really is, if you take away the Star Trek and just make this another movie about a team slowly and deliberately trying to solve a problem <laughs> with the yeah, God right. thing, this is totally your kind of movie. I mean, really. It's just with strap a bunch of Star Trek on it, and so it, it shouldn't be a surprise. For, it should surprise you that I really like this movie a lot, and and part of the reason that I am an apologist for this film is because it sets up so much in the Star Trek universe that I love so dearly. Uh, otherwise, if this didn't, if this was just a tribe of people solving a problem to uh, about communicating with a god thing, this is not my kind of movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm right. saying? Yeah. Uh, but I'm with you. I I really enjoyed uh, watching it this time, sitting down and watching it with intention, and and particularly, uh, you know, looking into that pivotal scene because I, you know, it, it it's funny to me that my favorite scenes, as we were talking about, what scene did we want to talk about, uh, dive into? My favorite scenes in the film are the human scenes, right? They're the scenes yeah. with that they're the character scenes, not the the particularly sci-fi scenes you know something else that i found very interesting you uh, started your family off watching star trek 2 my kids had never seen any star trek before and they kind of settled in at various times and started watching this my daughter kind of walked away early on but my son was riveted from beginning to end of this film and 
then tonight, my both kids were like, oh, let's put it back on and we want to finish watching it. It's like, who are these kids? They both want to watch Star Trek, the motion picture. It really floored me. But there's something about it that I think can really draw people in. It's there, it's There's something, I think, more to it than I never gave it credit for. Yeah. So I, I think its reputation uh, is, is sort of preceded it. Yeah. Uh, in 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 an influential way, and I, I think to its discredit, I, I think the film is is uh, it's better than people give it credit for, and I am really glad that we are are doing this series and that we sat down to watch it again. I think it's probably time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com/slash/the-next-reel. You'll see our list of films uh, that we've talked about on this show over the last uh, many years. And uh, then you can you can add it to your list and see how it lands on your collection. Uh, just swipe over in the show notes. You'll see a link to Flickchart. Just tap that. It'll take you right to the movie. You won't have to do any searching at all. There you go. Andy? All right. First up, we have Star Trek The Motion Picture or Hot Fuzz. Uh, I'm going to say Star Trek The Motion Picture. I still have to go Hot Fuzz. Okay. I'm sorry. And, and so we, it begins. <laughs> Big money, big money, no whammies, come on. All right, you ready? Uh Uh-huh. One, One, two, two, three. Rock, rock, paper, paper. paper. Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) That's hot fuzz. Uh, I know, and and you know what? Uh, In terms of, it's the legacy, man. It's the legacy. This is a vote of legacy. I get it, okay. Star Trek, the motion picture, or Fargo? I gotta say Fargo. Okay, I'm gonna say Star Trek, and... And I don't care who wins. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Right, ready? ready? One, One, two, two three. three. Scissors. Paper. Oh, man. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. Well, all right. Well, here we go. Star Trek, the motion picture, or Aliens. Oh. I'm definitely Aliens. Yeah, I'm Aliens. you got to be Aliens. Yeah, I'm definitely Aliens. Okay, there you go. All right. Star Trek or The Shining. I'm actually going to say Star, Star Trek. Star Trek, really? Oh, good. Okay, good. <laughs> Oof. Oh, I was going to just let you have it, but ah. Oh. All right, Star Trek. I'm surprised because I probably would pick put The Shining on first, but yeah. I don't know. I just I found Star Trek really enjoyable this time. So, uh, Star Trek or National Lampoon's Vacation? <laughs> Talk about kicking what? off franchises what? here, franchise starters. <laughs> I'm. I am. Uh, what would I put on first? I have to go with vacation. I just my my history with va- with that film. I'm just uh, all right. You you can have it. Okay. <laughs> uh, Star Trek or Sweet Smell of Success? Hmm. Boy, that's a good one. I think I'm Star Trek. I think I am too. Actually, Star Trek or Kramer versus Kramer, both from 1979. Yeah, I'm Star Trek. I want to say Kramer versus Kramer uh, because that that really hit me this time. Um, but I'm going to give you Star Trek, All even right. though I'd pick, I'd say Kramer versus the Kramer. I don't think you would. I think that you're kidding yourself. <laughs> Maybe I am. I <laughs> uh, okay, well, that's it. Star Trek, the motion picture, shot up to number 50 on our chart. Wow. Number 50 out of 310. That feels about right. That's a great place for it. You know, it's interesting. Um, I re-ranked this after I watched it because my ranking was so low. On my chart, it was down in the uh, like the thirty one hundred or so out of thirty eight hundred. And after rewatching it and just just really reveling in it this time, it jumped up to four seventy six out of thirty eight oh nine. So it's like in the eighty yeah. eighth percentile on my chart right now. That's great. Yeah, wasn't expecting that after watching this. Right. 
that's <laughs> really, really funny. I know. Uh, that's great. I uh, I'm I'm looking. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. And so I don't know where it is on mine. Let's see. So uh, <laughs> I Star beat you. Trek, the motion picture. And so uh, on my flick chart, I don't have as many movies as you do. I have 996 movies. Uh, and this one is 132 on my flick chart. So what's the percent on that? How I should rank it elsewhere, 4.5 stars. Spoiler. <laughs> 87 out of 100. Wow, there I'm higher than you. You're higher you than know. me. That's crazy. That's funny. Well, I've seen a lot of really bad movies. Yeah, <laughs> mine probably went up against Cube, and nothing beats Cube. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? So where does this end, land up uh, on your Letterboxd uh, ranking, letterboxd.com slash the next reel? If I had told you what my star ranking was before I watched this, I would have said one and a half. I am at a four star for this film, and I never would have expected that. <laughs> that's great yeah i i really just am so happy that we're doing this series because if not if if for nothing else than to have rewatched this film because this is just i i think it's just really one of the star trek uh masterpieces i i just i can't believe i'm saying that I but it's true either. i am really stunned i am stunned by this i am uh, probably predictably a four and a half star because i just said it uh i'm four and a half star and a big fat juicy heart on this film and there there are absolutely some five star treks in my collection um and, and this one you know the little things like uh just some little things the relationship the between the um uh, Ilya and and Decker just didn't play out. There were some of those character things that didn't didn't hit home. That that's a, that's that knocks a half star off. But generally, I am really glad we watched this film again. I, I have a, a great new appreciation for it. Absolutely, me yeah. too. Uh, well, I, you know, where do we go from here? Well, you know, this uh, <laughs> we didn't really mention, but you know, this did spur quite the franchise, Pete. And uh, so we are going to be talking about the next one in it. We're going to be uh, jumping into Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, mm. next week. Cannot and wait. we get some pew-pew shoot-em-ups. We should tell people who are uh, kind of tuning in and want to get the backstory that they should go back to Star Trek and watch um, Space Seed. Space Seed. That is the uh. episode that kind of helps set up this particular storyline. It's not, not necessary, I wouldn't necessarily say, but it, I think it definitely helps you understand the backstory. I think so, too. And, you know, a young Ricardo Montalban. Very good. Very exciting. He is very exciting. I, uh, I, this is, this is going to be a... Uh, that's going to be a fun one to talk about. I often, I, I for a long time, that this was my very favorite uh, Trek film. Uh, it, it's not anymore. Uh, starting very soon. But it's, it's up there pretty high. So I look yeah. forward to talking about that. I think that's all we have to say, Andy. I think that's it. Episode 400 in the can. That's right. That's right. Thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this, uh, this fine episode of The Next Real Podcast. Uh, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, man. This is one of those... <laughs>
it's one of those where reading the the one stars after really expressing our love for the film, it, it hurts my heart. It's true. It does. <laughs> Especially these anonymous ones. I have one from August 20, 29th, 2016 by Amazon customer. And uh, oh, dear. This was a terrible movie, and I can only hope that people in the 80s enjoyed it more than I did watching it this week. This is a great 30 to 45 minute story told over a painful two hours of sloth-like story progression and endless long shots of vessels approaching one another. It was like the director took 45 minutes of story and stuffed it full of painfully drawn out approach shots. The movie will put you to sleep. Thank goodness that Wrath of Khan saved the movie franchise. Ouch. The curse of the approach shot. <laughs> That's right. That is right. I think it's it's pretty safe to say, Pete, that most people who complain on Amazon are complaining about the pacing. Yeah, I think that's I think, true. I think that's pretty much it. Uh, including this person who says... Uh, this person whose name is Yep Yep. I, I did pick somebody who was not anonymous. Yep Yep said, terrible. Literally nothing happened in the first 20 minutes. I'm fine with the old school graphics, etc. It's an old movie. But watching these guys stand there, smiling at the Enterprise for 15 minutes, watch the teleporter for what seems like forever. It was just dumb. Plus, Shatner has on an amazing amount of makeup and has zero sense of humor that we have all come to know and love. Ouch. Yeah. Hit on the chat. Yeah. You don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to hit on the chat. No, you don't. Oh, man. Uh. He will come and get you. <laughs> it's the Baba Shat. Baba Shat. Was <laughs> that like the Baba Duke? Yeah. The Baba Shat is under your bed. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.